0: So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 9 today, Lord willing. Holly, that was lovely. Thank you. We're going to do a little rabbit in the beginning here if uh, if we ever get going. So uh, in chapter 8, last uh, two, three weeks ago, I, I shared this verse with you. And uh, I wanted to just take a little sidestep. At some point, I would also like to stop and talk about Foundation, Foundational theology that we've learned in just nine chapters of Genesis. It's just remarkable how much is here. And uh, what, what I'd like to do today is I'd like to talk about a, just an unusual coincidence. In verse 4 of chapter 8, And the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. Now I pointed this out. This this slide actually is from before. The next two slides, actually, I may have broken it into three, are from before. But I just want to bring you back, bring your minds back to where we were then. It was on the seventeenth day of the seventh month that the ark came to rest. Now I don't want to get into the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar drives me crazy. But uh, this is the Jewish civil calendar. This is what they had before. Passover. Once Passover happened, uh, that became the first month of the year. So <laughs> you have you have two calendars that they follow. I don't I, I don't want to get into that. Now, almost fourteen year fourteen thousand fourteen hundred years later, uh, in Egypt, the Passover happened on the evening of the fourteenth day of the seventh month. Now the instructions and the preparation were the day of the 14th it's 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 hard for my mind to get on it but the the day the day begins in the evening and they get that from Genesis chapter 1 and it was evening and it was morning day 1 evening and morning day 2 so from sundown that's the beginning of the day so the 14th began on what we would call the evening of the 13th so when the when the Jews we're getting ready for Passover that first time. You'll recall they were slaves in Egypt, and, and all these, uh, these ten uh, plagues had happened, and the final plague was the death of the firstborn. And in order to save your firstborn, the Jews were instructed to take a lamb and kill it. Actually, a little pet lamb was the word. And kill it and paint the blood on the doorposts just as we as we trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. They were trusting in the blood of that lamb to pass over them. So they were doing their preparation on the 13th. And on the 14th, that evening, was the Passover. I, I probably got you all lost because I'm actually confused talking about it myself. So then they were driven out that night, the night of the 14th, the the Egyptians came to them and they said, get out of here, get out of here. And they packed up their stuff as much as they could and they grabbed what what, uh, flour they had or whatever they were making their bread with and they took off. And uh, they walked for three days so that on the 17th of that same month they crossed the Red Sea. Now the point is that Israel began their new life free from slavery, on the 17th day of the seventh month, exactly the same date. Not the same day, because their calendar, like ours, the 1st of July falls on every different day of the week, depending on what year we're in. But it's the exact same date. And when you see that, you think, wait a minute, what's, what's happening here? How could, how could that have happened? And then you go 1,200 more years. Now, granted, I'm rounding up. It's 1,377, if my memory is correct, years later. Uh, Jesus comes along. Let me get up there. 1,200 years later, uh, Jesus was crucified on the preparation day. That's the 13th, which will become the 14th when the sun sunsets. the 14th day of the seventh month. All right. So that he was offered as our Passover lamb on the 14th day, the exact same date that the Passover was offered 1,200 years before. So then three days later, on the 17th day of the seventh month, Jesus rose from the dead. The very same date that the ark rested and the new world began. Now, that's a pretty big coincidence. The ark rested on Mount Ararat on the same date. The Jews delivered from their slavery to the Egyptians on the same date. And Jesus rose from the dead on the same date, all on the exact same calendar day. Now, this leads us to believe that these laws that were written by Moses 1,400 years before Jesus, these, these feast days that God established with Moses, illustrate, demonstrate, model even prophesy of events that are still future. So we see, now wait a minute, the ark rested, you know, the Passover happened, and Jesus was crucified. And then the Lord establishes a feast day. They call it a holy convocation. It's a required religious event where they actually act out future events, which is interesting because the Jews... We're actually acting out future events of the Passover 1,400 years before the actual Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, was sacrificed on our behalf. And the new life for the Jews, a life free from the slavery of sin, the slavery of Egypt, began on the 17th, and we're going to see that Jesus is going to be resurrected on the 17th when our freedom from sin happens. It wasn't. A, let me see if I covered all of that. Yeah, I think these feast days were established 2,000 years before Jesus, are a preview of God's plans for our redemption. Most biblical scholars see this. That you, you don't have to be a, a, a conservative or, or way out in the far right to see the parallels in these events. Uh, So there's three spring festivals that begin with the Passover. The Passover is on the 14th of Nisan, and I'm sure I'm not saying that right. Uh, I've already been over that. Jesus was crucified for our sins on the 14th. And 1 Corinthians 5, 7 links this for us. Uh, So we actually have Paul talking about the resurrection and the, the sacrifice of Christ, and he calls Christ our Passover sacrifice for us. The next day, on the 15th of Nisan begins a week-long feast or festival of unleavened bread. Now, after the Passover, the Jews, back in Egypt, they had to flee, and they didn't have time to, to raise, to <laughs> let the yeast raise their bread. So they were actually eating uh, bread that was unraised, unleavened bread. and uh, So they they took off with what they had in their arms. And even today, Israelis celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread by ridding their homes of, of yeast, of leavening. Now, Jesus is going to talk about how yeast or leaven is a symbol of sin and how it gets in and affects our lives and puffs us up. But even 14 100 years before Christ, almost 2,000 years before Christ, the Jews were patterning that out. And in the process of that, Jews today use the Feast of Unleavened Bread as an opportunity to set certain sins behind and and enter into a new season of holiness. So for them, I, I suppose it's kind of like our Lent where the, uh, the, the Catholic Church, and, and I guess many other churches, certainly not the Baptist Church, go through a period where we just, we, we just give something up. Um, Paul makes a connection there, therefore let us. Now he's talking to the church. I'm, I'm talking about Jews 1,400 years before Christ who followed this, this rule, the set of rules set up by God, that picture the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're, our Christ has now come, been crucified, resurrected, and and we're part of the church age, a completely different group. But Paul's tying the two together in 1 Corinthians 5:8. therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's making Paul the apostle in what we call the church age is making a spiritual application to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, three days after Passover, we're still in the spring feast now, is the Feast of First Fruits. That's on the you remember it was on the 14th. This is on the 16th of Nisan. After the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins, but before it ends comes the Feast of First Fruits. It also kicks off counting the first day of the Feast of First Fruits begins the count to the 50th day when we, we come up with what we call Pentecost, the 50 days. Uh, so I, I don't know if I've lost you or not. I, I've almost lost myself. I'm sorry. Three days after Passover, on the Feast of Firstfruits, Jesus was resurrected. So for, God set this pattern up so that the Jews would recognize these events once they got into their Bible and started reading. Now Paul writes as he applies this old Old Testament law to our lives. Said, but now Christ has risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since men came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the first fruit. Afterward, they are they that are Christ that is coming. So, Paul is telling us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this feast day, the first fruits that was established almost two thousand years before. And then, <coughs> excuse me, fifty days, <coughs> fifty days later comes the feast of Pentecost. Pentecost just means fifty days. It's on the sixth of the month of Silvan. 50 days after Passover, uh, during the days of Moses, Pentecost was when the Israelis received the Ten Commandments. So they, they, they celebrated. Well, they, I'd have to say they endured that first Passover. It wasn't really a celebration. They were just hoping to keep their kids alive. And then they got kicked out of Egypt. <clears throat> and then they got down to the water. And then they crossed the water. That was on the 17th. Just a direct fulfillment of when the ark landed. And then they walked another 50 days, another... I can't do the math, 40, uh, forty-seven it was 50 days when they made it to the mountain where God gave the giving of the law. So for the Jews, the Feast of Pentecost is a celebration of when the law was given. Now, it marked the beginning of a new covenant with Israel. Now, I'm going to use the word covenant, and I'll, I'll mess it up, I know, but, but a covenant is a contract. It's a testament, all right? It's an agreement. We're going we're gonna to end with, if I make it that far, we're going to end with the first agreement, the Rainbow Covenant. But this is a newer relationship with the Jews. And, you know, remember Moses went up and he got the, the Ten Commandments on two tablets. And he came down and, of course, the thing had gone haywire and he ended up breaking them out a fit of rage. And then he had to go back up and he had to get a duplicate copy made. And he had a copy made and he came back down. And the Jews said, the Jews said, uh, anything God wants us to do, we will do. Just let him stop talking to us. It scared him to death. So as long as God will be quiet, we'll do anything he wants. So they made a, a new agreement, a new contract, if you will, with, uh, with with God. It was a new covenant, a new beginning, a new start. All right? After Jesus' death, Pentecost was the exact day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the followers of Jesus. It marked the birth of the church, a new covenant. A new agreement. Right. First Corinthians eleven twenty five says, after the same manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, "This cup is the new testament, the new covenant, the new contract in my blood." So we we started, you know, all the way back with uh, the agreement to keep the law, and now we agree that in Christ, in our lives, in Christ, the law is fulfilled. This do as you ought to drink it in remembrance of me. Now, the thing that brings this up is uh, the future. So we've seen the three spring feasts. We've seen the summer festival, the Feast of Pentecost. And now we're coming up to the springtime. And it begins with the Feast of Trumpets. That's on the first of Tishri, which on the civil calendar is Jewish New Year's. Do I dare say it that way? Uh, this year began on the 15th of September 2023. So we're on, what is today, the 17th? So two days ago, on the 15th, that was Jewish New Year's. All right. Now they celebrate this by blowing, and I've read different accounts of it, by blowing somewhere in the vicinity of a 100 different trumpet blasts. Now the reason for the blowing of the trumpets is because the trumpet is to remind the Jews of how they communicated when they were in the wilderness. So the trumpet was used to say, get up, go to bed, let's make camp, let's break camp, let's move out. And so the continuation of the trumpets is a reminder of their travel in the wilderness. Okay, It marks the beginning of the new year in the Hebrew calendar. And in Israel, Jewish people throw stones into a body of water to symbolize the casting off of their sins. It's the idea of, of how we, when we get to our new years, we say, well, I'm going to give up, I'm going to give up coffee. You know, I've never said that in my life. I'm going <laughs> to give up smoking or I'm going to give up eating uh, fried chicken wings uh you know we, we always make some new year's resolution so to symbolize that the jews would cast stones into the water now we believe that it foreshadows the trumpet that will call us into the presence of god at the rapture so when you get when you get to these horn blowings Uh, it's the idea that God is getting ready to call you. So once the trumpet starts blowing. Now, Paul will talk about the rapture, and he'll talk about it being at the last trump. Now, it may just be the last trump and have no connection to the Feast of Trumpets, but there aren't too many uh, Christian scholars that believe that. They believe that when when you see this pattern developing throughout all seven of these feast days, you realize that uh, this first trump On the 1st of Tishri is a warning that the end is near. And when you get to the last Trump, which apparently is a long, drawn out blast of a shofar, uh, that's going to be the last Trump. And at the last, so there's a lot of Christians at this time of year that get all excited because they think, well, you know, 99 more blasts on that whistle and we're out of here. So everybody's thinking, well, we don't know when the rapture is going to be, but we just suspect. It's going to be connected with us in one way or another. The next day, uh, ten days later, is the Day of Atonement, uh, the 10th of Tishri. Now, that's going to be on Monday, September the 25th. We're not there yet. Leviticus 16 says that two goats should be taken. (coughs) I still haven't gotten rid of that call. One will be a sin offering and the other will be released. That's where we get the name scapegoat from. Now, the idea was the nation of Israel was to confess their sins over these goats in preparation to meet God at the last trump, at the judgment call, you see, the holiest of the high holy days of Israel. They also call it Yom Kippur. Yom is the word for day. I'm hoping Kippur is the word for atonement, but I didn't look that up. I think it's really just Hebrew for day of atonement. Yom Kippur looks forward to a time when they will meet Yahweh during the judgment day. At first I had Jesus, but there's not too many Jews that are looking forward to meeting Jesus. But they are looking forward to meeting Yahweh. Now, what they don't recognize is that Yahweh and Jesus are the same person. But we won't get into that. Uh, For Israel, it's a time to repent of sins by asking for forgiveness from those who we've wronged and extending forgiveness from those that have wronged us. It's a solemn day of fasting. And last is the Feast of Tabernacles. On the 15th to the 22nd of Tishri. And it remembers a time when all of Israel lived in tents in the wilderness. They built booths. It's also called the Feast of Booths. The Tabernacles calls for God's people to live a life in temporary dwellings. Now, I I don't know what it's like in Israel now. But in the recent past, they would actually go up on their roofs and they would erect... flimsy little shelters, and they would spend the week celebrating this festival, this, this time together. It was a time to go out and go camping. I, I, don't, I, I have to imagine they're in, in their Airstream campers now, but uh, it, it didn't used to be that way. Uh, it calls for God's people to live life in temporary dwellings, just as the Israelites did in the desert, and to symbolize for us our temporary passage on this earth. Many see this representing the millennium. So we, we have the whole prophetic plan of God mapped out, in my mind, in seven consecutive feasts, beginning with, of course, uh, I forgot the word, beginning, of course, with, uh, hmm. somebody help me here. Passover, Passover thank you, I knew there was a word there, but I couldn't get it out. Many will see this representing the millennium when we will once again live in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Where am I Uh, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So that's the seven feasts of Israel and their prophetic application in my mind. Um, Now, we're going to go back now to the rainbow covenant, the first covenant that God made uh, with Noah. There's what they call an endemic covenant that I haven't gone into yet. Uh, Verse 1. <coughs> and God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. I, I think Chuck Missler does this. He Parallels between Noah and Adam, which are... I probably should have made a slide of it for you. It probably would have helped you. So what I'm attempting to do now is compare and contrast <coughs> probably just compare adam to noah adam was the first noah was the first start over so noah was a do over both adam and over both adam and noah began with the earth emerging from the sea Both were told to be fruitful and multiply and replenish. The word means to fill up. Both worked in a garden. Both got in trouble with fruit. Both were subject of a curse afterwards. Both ended up uncovered. Both ended up having to be covered by another. Now, you have to know the rest of the story to follow this. Both events occasioned a prophecy. Both illustrate sin's destruction. Both these men will lose a son due to sin's rebellion. And after all that Noah's been through, a hundred years building this ark, living through 300, I forget the number of days, 351 days, I think, of the flood, a whole new start after hiking all the way down out of Mount Ararat. If it is the Ararat that we know, we're coming down from 17,000 feet. You were talking about 10,000 feet. I remember I was at 11,000 feet at... I want to say Monarch Pass in Colorado and 10 steps I'm gasping for air, you know, it's really remarkable. 10,000 feet. I remember James's James's college was at 8,000 feet and to get from the cafeteria to his his dormer was like, oh, somebody please carry me. There's just not enough oxygen there. So he works his way all the way down from 17,000 feet. And in the end, he loses a third of his family. It's pretty sad. And both rebellious sons begin a family line of rebellion so that we know that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are both survived the flood. So you want to think, you know, well, we did away with sin. No, no, we didn't. We also know that the world has changed. It wasn't like this for Adam. But God is telling Noah that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and of all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. What you don't hear is that Noah has dominion over them. You just know now that they're fearful of him. They're terrified of us. Uh, Because Satan is now in dominion, You know, God gave the dominion of this planet to Adam, and he promptly, we don't know how long it was, but he promptly turned that dominion over to Satan. So much so that now Jesus tells us Satan is now the prince of this world. And now you and I have just become one more creature for Satan to abuse. And this is also new here in verse 3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Well, no, I'm not going to eat everything that moves. But even as the green herb I have given you, see, they were all vegetarians before the flood. Even as the green herb I have given you all things, but the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse <Scared> me. <coughs> I may not make it. I'll tell you what. Uh, Richard, would you just give me a half a cup of black coffee? <coughs> I think it's time to go back to the doctor. <coughs> this is the first time that animals have been authorized for food. <coughs> Forgive me. We know something is different. Well, I think it's the environment has changed. <coughs> we'll see if this is good as a. Call card. This is the most talking I've done in two weeks. After 53 years of marriage, we don't talk that much anymore on a road trip. Let's see what that does. So we know something has changed in Genesis chapter three, uh, chapter 9. Uh, there's no restrictions either. <coughs> it's everything. We're free to eat every moving thing that liveth, even the creepy, crawly things, if you so desire. But there's one restriction, and the restriction is You have to take the blood out of it. We have to drain the blood out. God said, but the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. So we're not... Now, I don't think that means we're not supposed to eat these things while they're alive, although it certainly implies that. (coughs) I think it means we have to properly drain the blood out of an animal before we eat it. Now, Leviticus tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is in the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. (coughs) We have here now on the subject of blood. Now, of course, the blood of an animal cannot atone for our sins. But God is setting up a, a legal principle that when his son comes, his blood will be an atonement for our sins. And then God says, and surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it and at the hand of man and at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God he for for in the image of God made he man Now, what he's saying is that man's blood is even more sacred than that of an animal. And it's not to be shed because man was made in the image of God. Now, most people see in this the institution of government in that there has to be some kind of a structure to regulate this this new rule. This is a new rule. So we see in this the responsibility of humans to police ourselves and to punish those who are doing wrong. Uh, Capital punishment is now instituted for men who murder. This is the first time. Many see this as the institution of human government. Implicit in this is the authority to institute other laws that also regulate and control society, uh, such as robbery, adultery, anything that would lead to the shedding of blood. Uh, Both these rules of blood and capital punishment are reaffirmed in the New Testament. So what we have here is the eating of meats is reaffirmed in 1 Timothy chapter 4. The abstinence from eating bloods is reaffirmed in Acts chapter 15. And the authority of capital punishment is reaffirmed in Romans chapter 13. So what you have here is in this this rule that is established 1625 years after creation. We're talking almost 5,000 years ago is still in effect when Paul sat down to write the New Testament, according to the Holy Spirit. And you, be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth. Literally, bring forth in swarms. Now, I meant to do this mathematics, and I got sidetracked this morning. But we've gone from eight individuals in 1625 post-creation... 2023 of 7.888 billion people on the earth, almost 8 billion people. And then God establishes a new covenant. And God spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, I just noticed that. I wonder if the boys actually heard God saying this. And God spoke unto him and to his sons with him, saying, that's really what the word implies. And I, God, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, and of the fowl and of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. It'd be interesting to stand there and listen to God say this. And I will establish my covenant, my contract, my agreement. My guarantee with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there be any more of a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you, and of every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, my bow in the cloud, I'm sorry, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the clouds. Um, And I will remember my covenant. I I have a note here. I want to look up if I can. I got way cattywampus here. I'm not there yet. Good. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. You know, I, I think it was Missler that I was listening to a week ago that said that if, if the flood of Noah was a local flood, as liberals today claim, they, they claim it wasn't universal flood, It was it was just a bad flood. If the flood was just a local flood, like we've been through here, then God is not telling the truth here. But this flood is universal. So that's one of the arguments that this is a universal flood. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Now I believe there was a vapor canopy prior to the flood and I, I believe that when Genesis 1 said he, he divided the waters with the firmament, the firmament is a word that means spreading out. So he, he divided the waters from below the spreading out from the waters that were above the spreading out. I think he had water in what we call oceans uh, below the spreading out, our atmosphere. And he had water above our atmosphere. And I I believe he precipitated that vapor canopy. If there was a vapor canopy, there would never have been any rain. It would be like living in a terrarium and there would never be a rainbow. And the fact that this rainbow is established as something that's new would indicate that it never rained because there were no water droplets in the sky. You have to have a water droplet to get a rainbow. So this, this for many creation scientists, is proof that there was never any rain prior to the flood. But now that there is rain, to keep people from being terrified, the rainbow appears in the skies. It's spoken in these scriptures as if this is something new. over and over the rainbow you know it's it's kind of sad that the rainbow has been hijacked uh, because the rainbow is a promise of god's peace and a promise that god will not bring judgment again on us until the end but our covenant that's the rainbow covenant it's still in effect we have the promise that god is not going to flood the whole earth now, I, I don't know, we, we, Mary and I have been talking about it. You, you almost wonder. <laughs> as I'm telling you, if you're keeping up with the news, it's almost as if the entire earth is getting flooded. At least there's an awful lot of local floods going on right now. But the promise is still there. God won't do it again. Our promise is that it's in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our trust. Our trust isn't in that God is not going to flood this earth again. We know God is going to destroy the earth. He's just not going to destroy it with a flood. He's going to destroy it with fire, is what Peter tells us. But our promise is in the death of Christ on our behalf. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. This is Jesus. This is is Paul retelling the story of how Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. He actually hijacked, that's probably a bad word since he's a creator God of the universe, Uh, but he, he took a portion of the Passover celebration and he made it a new agreement between you and me with God, a new covenant, and the new covenant is in his blood. His body was broken, he took our punishment, and his blood was poured out to pay for the penalty for our sins. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that we find forgiveness. And when he had given thanks, he being Jesus, and when he, Jesus, had given thanks, he broke it and the bread, and he said, "'Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. "'This do in remembrance of me.'" And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, "'This cup is the new testament, the new contract, "'the new covenant, the new agreement in my blood.'" This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And we have this promise that whatever happens in the future, God will keep us safe through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you, Lord, for just getting me through this uh, voice issue. Thank you for this opportunity to gather with your church once again. We recognize that our only hope, Lord, is in your Son Jesus Christ. And we look forward to the day when we hear that trumpet blast. I don't suppose we'll hear all hundred of them, but at that last trump, Father, we expect to hear a trumpet, look up, see Jesus, and be gone from here. It's my prayer that everybody in this room is ready for that event. And they're ready. Because they've repented of their sins and they've turned to your son, Jesus Christ, and called on him for salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.